Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, mamas. I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan, and today it's time for our monthly mailbag on the Smart Money Mama Show. I'll be answering questions directly from listeners like you that have come up through our discussion of financial security this month. April's questions cover life insurance, long-term care, retirement planning, and so much more. I really enjoyed delving into the elements of financial security this month, because while these topics are always important, they seem even more crucial in times of economic uncertainty, which we're certainly seeing in the world today. So with this mailbag, I'm going to share some answers to specific questions right from listeners to help you better prepare and protect your family. For an overview of this month's questions and to find the resources mentioned in each answer, head over to the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 27. As a reminder, for these mailbag episodes, we source questions from our free Mamas Talk Money community on Facebook, which we'd love to have you join. But you can always send me questions via email or on Instagram, where I'm at smartmoneymamas. I'm happy to help out and I'll only ever share your questions on the podcast with your permission. All right, are you ready to get started? Let's dive in. Our first question actually came in in a few different ways, and it was about life insurance. Jen asked, life insurance, how the heck does it work? I know we don't have it, but if hubby passes away, we are done for. Then Michelle asked for clarification, whole life insurance versus term life insurance, which is better and why? Jen and Michelle, I'm going to answer your questions together. Jen, you expressed perfectly the situation of someone who needs life insurance. Your family is dependent on your husband's income and would be in financial distress if he passed away. Life insurance exists to help you cover expenses and replace income if that happened. Life insurance works very similarly to other types of insurance. You purchase a policy with a certain coverage amount, known as a death benefit, and pay a monthly premium. The death benefit can be as small as $10,000 or up to millions of dollars, though you can't just go buy a mega-sized policy. It has to be commensurate with your income level, family structure, and financial obligations. No making you or your partner worth more dead than alive. That just creates some bad incentives. But if the policyholder passes away while the insurance policy is active, we'll talk about that in a minute, the named beneficiary receives the death benefit as a payout. That amount is not taxable as income, but depending on the size of your estate and where you live, you could owe estate taxes. Okay, but what about what I said about the policy being active? That brings up Michelle's question about whole versus term life insurance. Term life insurance is the simplest and most common form of life insurance, as well as typically being the cheapest by far, and it's the right choice for most families. With a term policy, you select the amount of time you want life insurance coverage. That may be 10 years until your kids are through college, 20 years until your young kids have left the nest, or 30 years until your mortgage is paid off you decide. For that period of time, you pay a flat monthly rate. For my husband, who's a stay-at-home dad, we have a 20-year policy that costs us about $26 a month. Yes, stay-at-home parents need life insurance. Check the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 27 for full details on that. I'm not going to go down that side road. But if we pay $26 every month for 20 years, and at the end of the 20 years, fingers crossed, Jeremiah is alive and healthy, the policy just ends. We're out the $6,240 in premiums, and our agreement with Bestow, who's our life insurance provider, is closed. However, if something happens to him within that 20 years, they pay out $500,000. I'm willing to risk $6,200 over 20 years for the benefit of $500,000 in a worst-case scenario. Now, 
Whole life insurance is different. It's a type of permanent life insurance, meaning if you buy a whole life policy and pay your premiums every month for the rest of your life, your family will receive a payout whether you die at 35 or 105. On its face, this seems like a better deal, right? If you stay up on your premiums, there isn't a time when you're just out the money without payment from your insurance company. But of course, it's more complicated than that. Insurance companies are good at making money. Whole life insurance policies are, on average, 5 to 15 times more expensive than term life policies. Some of that extra money goes towards building a cash value in your policy that either earns a flat interest rate or gets invested in the stock market to grow an asset for you over time. That's a major selling point for these policies. So why is term life a better option for most families? Well, first, fees in permanent life insurance policies, especially those invested in the stock market, are high. Buying a term life policy and investing the difference will usually get you better returns and easier access to your savings than a whole life policy. Second, that cash value doesn't get added to your death benefit over time. You only receive the payout of whichever is higher. So eventually, if you live a long life, you're just getting your own money back. That cash value isn't growing your family's payout, at least not for a really long time. And finally, the higher costs of permanent life insurance often leads to families buying less insurance than they really need because they can't afford the monthly payments, which means if you or your partner pass when you need insurance the most, meaning when you still have dependents and limited retirement or other savings, you won't have the coverage you need. That's problematic. Life insurance is there to protect your dependents, children, a spouse that wouldn't be able to keep the house or cover debts without you, and so forth. For most people, you don't need life insurance forever. Your kids grow up and move out. You make payments on your mortgage and lower the debt. You save for retirement so your spouse has a nest egg to rely on if you were gone. The higher cost of whole life to protect dependents that are no longer dependent on you just doesn't make sense. Now, that's not to say that whole life insurance doesn't have its place. If you have a child or a family member that you're a caregiver for and you want to fund that long-term care, you may need permanent life insurance. Or if you have significant assets, millions of dollars, whole life can help with estate tax planning. In that case, definitely talk to a professional to make sure you understand how it works for your family. As always, different family structures have different needs. But for most families, term life is the right choice and easier to fit in the budget. All right, that was a lot on life insurance, but I wanted to make sure you knew the details. I hope you found it helpful. Our next question in this month's mailbag comes from Michelle, and it's another insurance question. She asks... Who needs a long-term care insurance? How do we prioritize all these insurance plans when you're struggling with money in the present? This is such a good question and one we hear a lot, Michelle. Long-term care insurance is meant to cover the costs of nursing care or other skilled care as you age. The average elderly person needs, on average, three years of long-term skilled care. And that can be expensive. And Medicare doesn't cover it. Research by the AARP indicates the sweet spot in which to buy long-term care insurance is in your mid-50s. Yes, the price goes up as you age, but since most people won't need care until their 70s or 80s, you're also paying those premiums a lot longer, and that means higher total costs than if you just bought it in your 50s. But if you wait until your mid-60s or later, your health will likely be less ideal, making premiums higher or meaning you don't qualify for long-term care insurance. But long-term care doesn't make sense for everyone. First, the easy answer. If you have significant savings that you're comfortable using for long-term care costs, 
you do not need long-term care insurance. Some people with significant assets will still buy the coverage to preserve more wealth to pass down to family, but that's a preference and really not a necessity. Second, those with limited assets or those who are willing to do Medicaid planning, and Medicaid planning is a strategy of transferring assets to family as you age so that you can qualify for Medicaid coverage, you can get their assisted living expenses or in-home care covered by Medicaid. You'll have less choice in where you go for care, but it isn't like you'll be stuck without any. So who does this insurance make sense for? Well, all those people in the middle. Generally, people with 500,000 to 2 to 3 million in assets want long-term care coverage. They'll want those funds for a comfortable retirement to preserve some wealth for their estate and to have more choice in the type of long-term care they receive. With this type of insurance, it's best to talk to a professional about your options. How much does long-term care cost in your area? How are prices changing year to year? Are you well-suited for Medicaid planning? Whether you need coverage or how much is going to be very unique to your situation and especially on where you live. But I really want to touch on the second part of your question, Michelle. How do you prioritize all these insurance premiums when you're struggling with day-to-day finances? As we talk through these different options, we know there are many different forms of insurance out there, and the premiums can add up quickly if we try to purchase them all. Some, like life insurance, are crucial. Trying to save money by skipping life insurance or purchasing a smaller policy is very risky. If you're struggling financially, your family is less likely to be prepared to cover loss of income if you or your spouse passed away. You need life insurance. And since term life policies are generally very reasonably priced, especially if you're healthy, it makes sense to fit it into the budget. You also need health, home, and auto insurance because those are big risks to your finances and because they're often legally required if you drive or own a home. We talked about the core needs for insurance in episode 21 on effective emergency planning for families. After that, though, it's a balance of what truly makes sense for you. You may not need long-term care if you're young or your assets are relatively low. You may hold off on disability insurance until you're in a better place, committing to building a solid emergency fund in the meantime. There's a hierarchy of what's important here, and you don't want to be sacrificing near-term financial security to create potential security in the future. That will just create stress. Also, as you add these policies, try not to end up with too much coverage. Some people feel like the protection of lower deductibles or higher coverage levels will make them feel more secure, but those premiums really add up. Only ever buy the coverage you truly need and work on building your savings and emergency fund. Okay, now, since we're on an insurance kick here, I've got two more quick questions on specialized types of insurance. Then we're going to talk about some retirement savings questions. Carl asks, how does critical illness insurance work? (laughs) Okay, this is a very specialized type of insurance, most often offered as an employee benefit. We've seen a growth in these policies as more families move to high deductible health plans and have more expenses that aren't covered by their health insurance. Critical illness insurance, also known as catastrophic illness insurance, helps cover those uncovered costs and non-medical costs, like childcare or transportation, if you develop certain illnesses heart attack, stroke, cancer, your specific policy will outline what illnesses are covered and which aren't, and many aren't. Typically with these policies, you'll receive a lump sum payment to cover expenses from your plan if you develop one of the critical illnesses, but they tend to have a host of stipulations. Even a cancer diagnosis might not trigger the policy if it hasn't spread far enough. For most people, long-term disability insurance, often also offered by employers, is a better choice. 
There are fewer limits on what's covered. An auto accident that puts you out of work for six months, for instance, would be covered by disability, but would not be covered by critical illness. And disability is also there to cover lost income if you can't work, paying out a monthly amount instead of a one lump sum payment. If you face a disability or illness that puts you out of work for a year or more, long-term disability is going to be more valuable. Also, if you save enough to cover your deductible in an HSA or an FSA and you have a robust emergency fund for time out of work, critical illness insurance becomes less important. As always, ask questions and understand what the policy covers. If you have disability insurance or emergency savings, this one might not be necessary. Which brings us to our last insurance question from Mary. Mary says, pet insurance, yay or nay? What type makes the most sense? We just had a friend spend $1,000 for a night at the emergency vet. I cannot, I cannot even begin to tell you how often I get asked about pet insurance. I'm a major yay for pet insurance with some limits. We use Healthy Paws for pet insurance for our pup, Stitches, and it's been a relief a number of times. Just last summer, she developed this weird eye issue. Her left eye went from a little droopy early in the day to both eyes droopy, cloudy, and rolling back in her head a few hours later. We were very freaked out. The emergency vet couldn't figure out what was wrong, and she needed blood tests, a doggy MRI, an overnight at the vet, and lots of eye drops in treatment. It cost about $1,600, 80% of which was covered by our pet insurance after our $250 annual deductible, which you'd actually already paid earlier in the year. Our dog manages to get herself into trouble more than she should. And the 80% is our plan choice. Not that they refuse to cover anything. It's just that that's how much we chose to have covered by our insurance. Now, do we have an emergency fund that could have covered that? Sure. But we made a decision when we got our dog that she was part of the family. To me, pet insurance is family happiness insurance. We don't have to discuss money when our dog is sick. We just get her the care she needs and file the claim. Now, I said there were limits here, and there really are. First, remember that pet insurance doesn't cover routine costs like annual shots or dental cleanings. These policies are for injuries and illnesses. You'll still need to save for those routine care items. Second, pet insurance makes the most sense when you have a brand new puppy. These plans will exclude pre-existing conditions, and they may even exclude common breed issues, hip dysplasia for a boxer, for instance. Our dog is a mixed breed rescue that we got as a pup, so she didn't have any pre-existing conditions or any breed exemptions. That made the policy cheaper and more inclusive. If your dog is older or there are a lot of restrictions on their policy, it probably makes more sense to create a sinking fund in your budget for vet bills instead of buying pet insurance. And finally, third, there are good pet insurance providers and bad ones. Read reviews before getting coverage and choose a plan that doesn't require pre-approval for treatments and lets you go to a wide range of vets. With Healthy Paws, we've never been denied a claim and can go to any vet we choose. We just need to submit the receipt after the fact. That's made life easier for us when we travel since our pup has needed care at my in-laws in New Jersey and she had to be brought to Massachusetts for her little MRI last summer. I highly recommend them if you're looking for a provider. Pet insurance definitely doesn't fit in that crucial insurance bucket. This is about preferences and peace of mind. You can totally save an emergency fund for vet expenses or use your family emergency fund when needed. But if you don't want to be weighing the money versus your pet's care, coverage can be a great thing. And I highly recommend people looking to get a pet to price in pet insurance as part of their pet budget. Okay. All right. Have we all heard enough about insurance? Let's talk a bit about retirement planning. Our first retirement planning question comes from Kristen, and she asks, with many companies cutting 401k match, is this still the best pre-tax vehicle to save with? 
oh, Kristen, it is so frustrating when companies cut benefits. It definitely creates so many, well, what now questions. If your company is still offering any match, they just rolled it back. Your 401k is still the best vehicle to save in. We don't say no to free money. If your company has completely cut the match, you have to think about three things. One, ease of contributing. The volatility in the market so far this year has spooked a lot of people. But Kristen, you and I both know that the key to long-term investment success is to be consistent in our investments. 401k contributions come right out of your paycheck. You never see that money. And that's a powerful thing. You're far more likely to be consistent when your investments are automated like that. You could set up an automatic monthly investment with another type of account, like an IRA. But you'll have to be sure to do that And when you see the money come into and then out of your account every month, that you won't hit the stop button. If seeing that money come into your account and then leave again is going to make saving more painful for you, make it more likely that you stop when the market is volatile or you need a little extra cash, you're going to want to stick with that 401k. Two, you've got to consider fees. 401k fees are typically higher than low fee options like Vanguard or Fidelity. If your 401k plan at work has notably high management fees, you could benefit from saving someplace else. But don't forget the last and very important thing. Number three, tax benefits. With a traditional or Roth IRA, you can get tax benefits for saving for retirement on your own. A traditional IRA works just like a 401k for tax purposes, except the limits are much lower. You can only contribute up to $6,000 a year to your IRA. Well, you can contribute up to $19,500 to a 401k. If you have the ability to save more, you can get greater tax benefits from a 401k. Also, if your modified adjusted gross income, which is just what you make minus tax deductions, is more than $136,000 as a single filer or more than $206,000 as a joint filer, you don't qualify for the tax benefits of an IRA. You can contribute to a traditional IRA, but you can't actually deduct the contributions, so it doesn't really make sense. With a high income, a 401k still makes the most sense, even with the potentially higher fees, because you're getting that tax benefit you can't get elsewhere, and you can save more money. In short, for some people, the lower fees of an IRA make it a better choice without their employer match. But that automated savings, higher contribution limits, and tax benefits without income limits are great perks, making just sticking to what you've been doing a fine choice as well. Don't throw the 401k out just because the match went away. Which brings us to our final question for this month's mailbag, and it's from Elizabeth. She writes, how much do I need to save for retirement? Some of the estimates I see out there feel impossible. Elizabeth, retirement is one of the number one things people worry about when they think about their money, especially in market downturns when you see your savings, however minimal, decline. It makes you worry. How will I ever save enough? And the answer could be a whole podcast episode of its own. Hell, it could probably be its own show. And I'll put it on our schedule to do that, to do an episode, not a whole show. (laughs) Because unfortunately, while there are benchmarks and guidelines, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to this question. One of those common rules of thumb is to save 15% of your income, including employee match, if you get it, for retirement. But that assumes you start in your 20s. If you're starting in your 30s or 40s, you'll have to save more to catch up. Fidelity uses a different benchmark, guiding people to have one times their income saved for retirement by 30, three times by 40, six times by 50, eight times by 60, 10 times at retirement age. If you're investing your retirement savings, the growth over those time periods won't just be cash you're tucking away, but also your money working for you and growing. 
Fidelity estimates that these amounts will replace about 45% of your pre-retirement income through retirement, plus what you get from Social Security, giving you enough to maintain your current lifestyle. But your lifestyle, that is the kicker here. To know how much you need to save for retirement, you have to determine what you want your retirement to look like. How do you think you'll spend your days? How much will you travel? Where will you live? How old do you want to be when you retire? Your answers will, of course, change over time, but having a clear idea lets you estimate how much that could cost and give you a baseline for how much you'll need to save. If you currently live and work in New York City or San Francisco, but want to retire to a cabin in Montana, you don't need to save enough to maintain your current lifestyle. Your cost of living just won't be as high. Alternatively, if you only travel one week a year right now, but want to travel for months at a time in retirement, you might need to set aside even more. My friend and author Emily Guy Birkin recommends creating tiered ideas for retirement. Write down the minimum you could be happy with, then create your mid-range, things are pretty good, retirement plan, and then your dream retirement. Know how much each one of those costs, then track your savings progress as you climb the tiers. First, save for that minimum happiness level. When you reach that level, hopefully long before your actual retirement, you'll have the comfort of knowing that you have at least enough to be happy. Then stretch for your mid-range goal. You may never reach that ideal dream living on a yacht level, but there will be comfort and happiness in knowing you won't be destitute either. In our free Money Mama's Guide to Investing, which we'll have linked in the show notes, we have links to some great retirement calculators to help you estimate how much you need to save to reach your goals. And if you're planning for early retirement, I highly recommend checking out On Trajectory, which is what I use to model our retirement plans, because early retirement math is a little different from traditional retirement math. The second part of your question, how saving for retirement feels impossible, is crucial though. Some people hear the fidelity estimates and practically fall out of their chairs. If you haven't saved much yet, three times your income by 40 seems insane. The key to saving enough isn't necessarily completely overhauling your life and putting all your money towards retirement today. It's about making small, consistent increases. Up your retirement contributions by 1% every few months. Listen to episode 25 and create a debt payoff plan. Then tackle your debt and free up the extra money in your budget for more retirement savings increases. Pick up a small side hustle and put those savings towards retirement. And truly here, small changes make a big difference. Let's say you're 37 years old and you commit to some kind of side gig that makes you $250 every month. And every month you invest that $250 with an average long-term return of 7%, which is pretty average for the stock market. By 65, when you're ready to retire, you'll have saved an extra $260,000 for your retirement, more than triple what you ever earned from that side hustle. Savings and investments are like rolling up a snowball. At first, the tiny amounts you're rolling up seem like they'll never make a difference. But as you keep going, the growth builds exponentially. You start to make a major impact. So Elizabeth, if saving for retirement feels impossible, just make a small change. And every few months, check in and see if you can make another change. You can do this. Whew, yay, that was so fun. I love doing these mailbag episodes, guys, and hearing all your questions. As I mentioned at the top of the show, feel free to send me your questions really anytime via email, social media, or join the Mama's Talk Money Facebook group and post them there. Financial security is crucially important at all stages of our lives. That can mean saving the right emergency fund, getting out of debt, creating a will, purchasing the right insurance, or saving for retirement. 
just remember that you likely won't be able to check all these boxes at once that I just rattled off and probably overwhelmed some of you. But you can keep making progress. As a reminder, you can view the full show notes for this episode with the answers to the questions we discussed and links to all the resources mentioned at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 27. You can also head there to download your free financial preparedness checklist and determine which aspect of financial security you want to work on next. My friend, thank you so much for listening to the Smart Money Mama show with me today. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast and tell your friends. I truly appreciate it. Keep talking money, mama. I'll see you next time.